0: I have some old friends coming over for dinner tonight, and I promised them that I would make them pasta with the sauce, which is the slow cooked meat sauce of Sicilian or Italian grandmother fame. If you are Italian or Sicilian, you might know it as ragu or Sunday tomato sauce. Or perhaps if you are from New York or New Jersey, you might call it the gravy which sounds strange to me, no one in Buffalo where I grew up called it gravy. And if you are of Sicilian or Italian background, you know that the sauce, or whatever it is that you call it, is kind of like the Eighth Sacrament. It requires a lot of ingredients. Each family has a very particular recipe. So I needed to make trips to three different supermarkets to get everything that I needed. It also requires a lot of prep work chopping the garlic and the onions and the carrots and the celery and mixing the meatballs and so on. So when I got back home, I was feeling kind of exhausted from all of this running around town, and I just wanted to get the sauce started, which made me commit one of the cardinal sins of cooking. I started to cook before having all of my chopping and prepping done. The French have a term for prep work. You might have heard it on the Food Network. Mise and plas, meaning everything in its place. Tellingly, I don't think that there is an equivalent Italian expression. <laughs> it's meant to convey to the cook, be organized. Have all of the raw ingredients chopped and cut, and all of the cans and jars open, and everything measured out before you put anything on the heat. Because once the food is actually cooking, Everything just seems to happen too fast. And so I didn't do that. I figured I could just do the prep work on the fly to save time. So I'm cooking the garlic and the pancetta while trying to dice the onions that are going to go into the pot next. And the danger is that if you don't get the onions in the pot at the right time, the garlic and the pancetta on their own start to burn. And then if you don't stir the onions, because you're trying to measure out the wine and the tomato paste, they're going to burn too. And you're doing this all while trying to mix the meatballs on one hand and sear the sausages on the other burner, and it just gets to be a big mess. But in the end, the sauce turned out fine. But it was a hectic evening, juggling everything without burning or forgetting something. And all of that could have been prevented if I had just taken the time at the beginning to do my prep work. I had a friend once who was a kosher observant Jew. Among the many rules that kosher law imposes is that one absolutely cannot consume any animal blood. This is so strictly followed that Orthodox Jews will reject, reject an egg that has a blood spot in the yolk, something that you don't see too often, but they might pop up in your carton every now and then. So my Jewish friend told me that when he was a kid, his grandfather taught him how to make scrambled eggs. Now most of us, if we're going to make scrambled eggs, we just crack however many eggs we need into a bowl or the pan and start to scramble them. But the danger is that if you are observing kosher and you throw an egg that has a blood spot into the bowl with the other eggs, then all of the eggs are going to be considered unclean and have to be thrown out. Or worse, if you put the bad egg into a hot pan, then the pan itself becomes unclean and it can't be used any longer. So my friend's grandfather taught him to crack each egg into a cup or a coffee mug and check it for blood spots before adding it in with the rest. That way you don't pollute the whole mess of eggs. My friend said that he thought that his grandfather taught him to cook eggs just so he could teach him that lesson not about eggs per se, but rather about being organized and thinking ahead so as to avoid waste and mistakes. You could say in common parlance that my hastiness to get the sauce started before I had all of my ingredients prepped was a failure of patience. But strictly speaking, a theologian such as St. Thomas Aquinas would call it a failure of longanimity, which is a word that we don't use too much anymore. It's related to magnanimity. A magnanimous person is one who has the capacity to conceive of and pursue great things and to ignore trivial ones. By contrast, a person who longanimous has the capacity to be aware of and to concern himself with things in the future, even those that are a long way off. It relates to patience, but it's not exactly the same thing. In Christian philosophy, patience isn't just the capacity to be aware of and to attend to future things. Rather, as St. Thomas Aquinas says in the Summa, patience is the voluntary and prolonged endurance of arduous and difficult things for the sake of some virtue or profit. Patience, thus, finds its culmination in our ability to endure suffering for the sake of God not for the sake of some temporal thing in this life. Patience is ultimately rooted in our charity towards God, which is why the saints, and especially the martyrs, were said to be masters of patient suffering. In the Gospel reading, Jesus tells us the parable of the fig tree that failed to bear fruit for three years, and so the owner wanted to cut it down. But his gardener convinced him to give it one more year. And this is actually a very important allusion to the Old Testament. In Leviticus 19.23, God commanded the Israelites that when planting a new fruit tree, one was not allowed to consume any of its fruit for the first three years. Then in the fourth year, all of its fruit had to be consecrated to God, meaning offered up as a burnt sacrifice. Only after the fourth year could people then partake of the fruit. On the one hand, this was simply good crop husbandry. Trees and vines generally don't produce good fruit for the first couple of years. But the underlying message that God was trying to convey was the importance of patience, that the Israelites could not and should not expect instant gratification. They had to be willing to plant now, even though the usable harvest would be many years in the future. The passage from Leviticus is worded this way, When you come into the land and plant any fruit tree there, first look upon its fruit as uncircumcised. For three years it shall be uncircumcised for you. It may not be eaten. The tree is referred to as uncircumcised, a term we normally associate with men, not trees. But it means that until that fruit has been offered to the Lord in its fourth year, it's not fit to be eaten until it has been consecrated, which is what the ritual of circumcision was for the Jews. Otherwise, that fruit has no value as food. In the first part of the gospel, the Jews asked Jesus questions about these people they knew who had suffered untimely and seemingly meaningless deaths. The Galileans killed by Pilate, or those killed in Jerusalem when the tower collapsed. Jesus said that these people were not necessarily any worse sinners than anyone else. In other words, their deaths were not some special curse from God. Yet he tells them, If you do not repent, you will all perish as they did. The only way that our lives will have any meaning, even in the face of suffering and death, is if we are consecrated to the Lord. That begins with our baptism, of course, but it continues each and every day with the choices that we make. Do we consecrate ourselves continually to the Lord in everything that we do? Do we have a willingness to trust in God's providence in our patient slog through this life? Are we willing to see things on God's timetable rather than our own? If our love of God is not patient, then like the Jews, we will worry endlessly about whether the suffering that we endure is a curse from God or not. Truth be told, we will also worry endlessly about the good things we experience as well. We will fear that perhaps they are a false consolation of the devil, trying to knit us tighter into this world and keep us away from God. But if we are living out our baptismal consecration in fidelity, we will have the trust that everything that we experience, good and bad, comes from God. We will no longer fear even death itself because we will simply see it as one more opportunity to give glory to God. From this trust comes the patience to endure all things in hope and charity. This is the secret of the great saints and martyrs. St. Paul tells us in the second reading that we can't make sense of all of the good and bad that we experience in this life if we don't see it in the context of God's plan of salvation. He points out the Israelites during the Exodus period, all passed through the sea, and all of them were baptized into Moses, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. Yet the Lord struck many of them down on account of their wickedness. Their wickedness lay in the fact that many of the Israelites grumbled against the Lord. They didn't have the patience to accept the suffering that the desert imposed upon them. They said they'd rather go back to Egypt rather than continue this long march to the promised land. Fortune tellers and astrologers make their living telling people that good and evil are impersonal forces that operate in this world with impunity. But as Christians, we know that while good and bad things can happen in this life, God himself is the supreme good, and the only true good for us is to follow God. And so we live in hope, whether we suffer good or evil. If we live in hope, then we know that anything that we patiently endure ultimately rebounds to God's greater glory. That doesn't mean that we aren't ever sad. But in our our heart of hearts, we should recognize, for example, that if someone good and holy dies, that God will make greater use of that person's holiness in heaven than could have ever been the case here on earth. So yes, we will mourn and be sad sometimes, and that's appropriate. But ultimately, we will know that the only enduring question is this, how does it affect the kingdom of God? That's ultimately what our Lenten journey is meant to teach us that the things that we give up or endure as penitential practices in Lent are small in comparison to the kingdom of heaven. When we recognize that, we grow in patience, and that means we grow in love. When we have love, then, in the words of St. Paul, we can bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.